From the American College of Financial Services, it's time for NextGen in 10. I'm Ross Riskin, chair of the NextGen Advisory Task Force, and for the next 10 minutes, you'll be joined by our hosts and guests discussing topics relevant to up-and-coming financial advisors. Welcome, everyone, to the NextGen in 10 podcast. I am Clarissa Hernandez, and I will be your host where we will be talking with Jeff Lant about fee compression. Jeff Lant is Vice President and Director of Investments for North Star Resource Group. He is a chartered financial analyst. And thanks so much for chatting with us today, Jeff. My pleasure, Clarissa. So in your opinion, where do you think that this phenomenon of fee compression is coming from? I think it's coming from two directions. I think one is inside of our own industry and it's something of our own making. And I think it's also coming from you know, outside of the advisement community. So I'll, I'll try to tackle each, each one of them. And I, I think I've been hearing fee compression as a term for you know, over a decade now. I don't know how long it's been around, but the general idea has, has been talked about for quite some time. And I think it continues to pick up. Coming from inside our industry, I think that you know, as more advisors are not only managing assets, but engaging clients in various levels of financial planning, you know, they're trying to come up with what's, what's the right business model for me? How much should I be charging for fee planning? How much should I be charging for investment advice? And they're trying to come up with some magical combination of I'll do this here, I'll do this there. And so advisors are charging more fees for financial planning. And a lot of those advisors are choosing to reduce the fees they're charging for their assets under management, because I think in their mind, they're adding it all up and they're arriving at a figure. They're saying, well, this is what I think I'm worth. This is what the work I'm doing. This is how long it takes me to do it. And I think this is a fair fee. And they're trying to split between a couple of different mechanisms to pay for that fee. So the advisor in in his or her mind is kind of anchored. This is what I'm worth. And even in talking with advisors within our own firm, I know there are advisors that their advisory fees start at 1% and decline. And it ultimately always comes back to what does the advisor think their fees are worth? That's where they start. So I think the same thing is happening in a global sense where an advisor is thinking about working with a prospective client in a certain type of a situation. They know they want to engage in certain financial planning activities, and they know that the average assets that the client may need some help managing might be in another category. And they put these two things together and say, well, I think over the course of a year to pay my staff and to do all the things we need to do, this type of service is going to cost about 8000 a year. And they split them between these two things. And I think advisors' language may lend itself to, you know, training clients or getting them to think that advisors shouldn't be charging more than X on their investment advisory accounts uh, because they're not. I don't know. Maybe it's in a way competing on fees. I'm not really sure. But I I do think there's something of something's coming from inside of our industry. And uh, as we talk amongst ourselves and as anybody can read what's posted online to advisors or, or intended be for the consumer, there's some information. There's a narrative there, and it's probably going to have some sort of an impact. But I also think, and, and probably the more impactful thing that's happening is you've got your Betterments and Vanguard, and you've got your Schwab Intelligent Portfolios. You have the capability of different organizations to disintermediate the advisor from the client. And so there's some argument about, you know, whether or not, if that's really true advice, like, are these things just really mechanisms for the do-it-yourselfer in the first place? And they're out there saying, well, you know, you can have asset allocation and rebalancing, and we're only going to charge you 25 basis points plus the exchange-traded funds. 
And, you know, are those people really the ones looking for comprehensive financial planning advice, or is that just another way for, you know, some of the manufacturers of mutual funds or portfolio management services to offer their wares to, you know, ultimately what I would view as the do-it-yourselfer. So I see it coming from two angles, actually, you know, inside and outside of our industry. Yeah. So there's probably something to be said about robo-advisors. Like, is it the same type of person who wants to work with a financial advisor? Like they probably wouldn't be satisfied with working with a robo-advisor, even though it could potentially be cheaper so I'm going to put advisors in, a, in two categories, and I think there's many more than these, but just to create two polar opposites, you've got an amazing advisor who, who has a, a great command of so many things financial, and they are just, they're a blessing to their clients, and anybody would just be so lucky to ever meet them. Uh, they have so much value, uh, more value than they could ever be charging. And then you've got other people who had almost no value whatsoever. So in my mind, as I'm talking with our advisors about fee compression or just even this whole notion that robo-advisors are going to make it difficult for financial advisors to keep and retain and find new clients in the future. I would say if you're a really good advisor, you're in short supply and the value you provide is so much greater than the, the, than the robo. I don't even like the term robo-advisor. I, I prefer robo-asset allocation services because they're really not providing any advice. That's true. Right. The robo-solution is log in answer these 10 questions, and here we go. And it assumes that these people understand the questions. And, and it totally discounts the fact that how they might feel comfortable investing may not be the way they need to invest to actually reach their financial goals. Does the computer say anything to them about this? No, the computer does nothing about it. It's just there to do what you want to do. So I would say for advisors who aren't in that category, which I would say premium, the premium advisor who can ask for premium fees deserves those and has clients who uh, don't complain about them. They don't have any issues. They don't have any concerns in my mind with robo asset allocation uh, services, but other advisors who do very little for their clients. Uh, yeah, I, I think they're the ones that are going to fall victim to um, their clients maybe migrating to a robo because if they don't see any difference between their experience working with a real human and their experience of just logging in at their convenience, one would beg the question, why would they pay that premium fee, right? But for those advisors that do deliver a very different experience than what you can get from just asset allocation and automated rebalancing, uh, I think it's much less of a concern. I think you're probably right. I got a series of clients that I think were coming to me for a time that, to basically just review investments and not have to pay, like not pay an AUM fee thinking they could do it themselves. And I wanted to make sure that the overall fee was higher than like a wealth front or a betterment because they were getting more value than that. Yeah. So. Well, I think you bring up a very, very good point there, Clarissa, where advisors that do a great job of engaging their clients in conversations that matter. It just changes the entire conversation because in the end, the portfolio isn't an end. It's a means to an end. The portfolio exists to do only one thing is to serve their financial plan. The portfolio needs to be invested in such a way that there is the highest possible likelihood that the types of returns that they need will be earned in time, given enough money, given enough patience that uh, the portfolio has the ability to support the plan. But having those conversations about what are they trying to do? What are the things that they value in life and showing them all of the different things that they probably haven't thought about, maybe don't want to think about, 
but that they need to. And once you engage a client on those terms and you start getting into those conversations that are, have nothing to do with the portfolio, right? In the end, the portfolio is a prescription. We offer investment advice once we understand uh, what on earth they're trying to accomplish in life, but that is just a byproduct of a good financial planning conversation, right? And so when we engage our clients in those conversations about what they're really trying to accomplish with their money, which comes down to people and relationships, right? At the end of our process, when we give them the recommendation of the portfolio, they understand that all of these things are intertwined. We can't separate the portfolio from the plan. These two things have to work together. They have to be monitored on an ongoing basis. And whenever something needs to be changed, we need to be there ready to sit down with them, go through this, uh, work through whatever uh, might be changing their situation and reconcile their investment policy to uh, what that is. And that lends itself to an ongoing proactive relationship with an advisor in which an advisory fee makes perfect sense. There's no way that any advisor in America can give a client that type of experience and advice and service at 25 basis points so that when we talk with them about our advisory fees maybe being a percent, that isn't a question in their mind. Like, obviously, you need to charge more than what I could do for um, on my own on online because you're doing something that I can't and don't want to do on my own and certainly can't find help um, online for. And I think you bring up a good point about being ongoing advice and proactive. I had a client ask me once like, okay, I think should we kind of wrap up working with you because we've got the plan in place? You know, we've got the asset allocation, we've got the insurances, we've got this action plan that shows what we need to be doing over the next 10, 15 years, whatever. And maybe this isn't a perfect analogy, but I compared it to using like Google Maps or Waze like you may know how to get to the airport. You may know how to get to your friend's house or to get to work or whatever. But a lot of the value in these apps is that there's this outside satellite looking down to see what is the most efficient way to get there. I agree. I, I think the map is a really good uh, comparison to the challenge of financial planning, which is people are making their best guess as to what they want to do, but everything keeps changing where we're working, what we're being compensated, even our goals. As, as we get older in life, what we found important a year ago or five years ago isn't even on our radar anymore. So we know through experience that clients' goals are constantly changing. And it's so valuable to be constantly engaging in conversations about what actually is important to you. Because we want to make sure that your resources are aligned and consistent with what you're trying to do. So for somebody to think that you can sit down and develop a plan and that's it, Maybe for some people, but that would not be the, the vast majority of individuals. And especially as people are approaching retirement, even get into retirement, a lot of the financial bloggers talk about people getting into retirement. They actually have to try it on because you don't know what it's like. It's like you've never been there. So you make these plans. And then once you get there, you're like, no, this is not what I envisioned. I want to do something different. And it takes uh, a lot of people, what they say, at least five years to actually get something comfortable that represents what they thought is, is what they wanted to be doing. So I agree with you. I think the, the map is a great way of putting a contract. It's, there's always twists and turns in the road, always detours. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. Thank you, Clarissa. For more episodes, visit our website at theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. This has been Next Gen in 10, brought to you by the American College of Financial Services.